Thank you, Josiah. Morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. It is Christmas. We're going to study the birth of Jesus this morning. Open your Bibles with me. We're getting into the next part of the Gospel of Luke. Um, If you are unfamiliar with how to find the Gospel of Luke, it's pretty easy in terms of uh, placement in the Bible. There's two parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. You're going to make your way over to the New Testament. It's about the back third of the Bible. And then it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. For many of us, Jesus Christ is a familiar figure. Uh, It's one of those names where we, we say to ourselves, I don't really know anybody who wouldn't know the name Jesus. In fact, I've got to tell you, I've been to different parts of the world. I've been to India, uh, to the Middle East, parts of Europe, all over the United States, and I have only met one person in my entire life who didn't know the name Jesus. You know where I was when I met that person? Daytona Beach, Florida. And I was just sitting there thinking to myself, what, did you grow up in a bubble or something? What is going on here? Uh, but for most of us, the name Jesus is very familiar. We, we go into people's homes and we see a picture of Jesus. Uh, if you're in the South, you've probably driven around and seen billboards where it tells us that Jesus saves or there's only one way to salvation and it is Jesus. Uh, you might have seen Jesus on the History Channel or the periodicals like Time Magazine. Uh, I did college in West Virginia. And as you drive through West Virginia, all over the state, there are these prominent hillsides along the interstate where you see three crosses. Uh, A wealthy donor has put those all over West Virginia because when you see the symbol, you think the name Jesus. But how much more so, how much more so is the familiarity with the story of Jesus' birth? It's one of those things, uh, you know, maybe you've seen a movie where you've watched it so many times you can repeat the lines of the movie verbatim. That's kind of like how the birth narrative of Jesus is. For a moment, though, I want to ask you to do something with me if you are able. I want you to shed all of your thoughts about that birth narrative, all the things that your your preconceived notions, just leave them right here at the front. You can just throw them up here. And, you know, because it's not Christmas, I, I can actually turn upside down some of our traditional notions of the birth narrative without the fear of you guys you know, stoning me to death. So we should be all right with that. I want us to ask ourselves not, don't ask yourself the question, what do I know about the birth narrative, the Christmas story, but rather ask the question, why does Luke put these narratives in his comprehensive work, Luke and Acts? Why is it here? Uh, Does he put it in there so that we can dress our children up as cute baby sheep for Christmas pageants? Uh, Does he put this story in here so that we can have long theological arguments on whether or not virgin birth is possible? 
Does he put it in here so that we can create a quaint impression in our mind of a baby Jesus, meek and mild, born in a stable? Here's what I think is going on. I understand that Luke tells us this story to make the point. Jesus is inherently unique. He is one of a kind. He is matchless and unequaled. There has never been a birth like this. Never before in history has God said the things through an angel about a person that he says about Jesus. He is unmatched from the start. So how does Luke convey this message? He does it by comparing Jesus with two people. Let's look at the broad overview of chapters 1 and 2 of Luke. The first chapter is all about Jesus being compared to John. You see it all throughout that chapter. The second chapter, the first 20 verses, we see that Jesus is compared to Caesar Augustus. And then after that, verses 21 through 38, we see that Jesus is recognized by two people. I would submit to you that John represents the greatest of all prophets, Caesar represents the greatest emperor of the Roman Empire, but then we have to ask the question, what about Jesus? Who is he? Well, we see this as we begin by looking at the story. So the greatest story ever told begins with a husband and wife who have lived most of their lives with a low-burning sadness, a sadness that they've shared through the entirety of their marriage. They badly wanted a child, but they could never conceive. And what do we know about these two people? We know that they were righteous and blameless before God, which means that they walked with God. They trusted God. They believed in the promises of God. They probably prayed fervently for a child, but for some reason, God never made this happen in their life. Zechariah is given the opportunity of a lifetime. It would have been the greatest day of his life. Verse 9 tells us that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. A supreme honor. There were 18,000 priests during this time. They were chosen by lot. If you were chosen once to do this Uh, act of worship in the temple, you could never be chosen again. I mean, some people went their entire life as a priest, and they would never get this opportunity. And that, to me, that sounds a lot worse than being picked last for dodgeball. So in the temple, Zechariah is greeted by an angel, Gabriel. There are two angels named in the scriptures, Gabriel and who's the second? Michael. Gabriel, when he comes and provides a pronouncement in the scriptures, as I understand it, it's always a pronouncement that is moving God's story of salvation along. And so Zechariah is shocked to learn that this plan would involve his barren wife having a child well beyond her time. And then Gabriel explains what kind of child this will be. In verse 13, We see that his name shall be John. In verses 14 to 15, uh, we understand that this child will take a lifelong Nazarite vow. Verse 15, this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Verse 16, he will lead about a great revival. 
And then first, verse 17, he is the prophet foretold by Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He wrote these prophecies some 450 years prior to this time. In Malachi 4, 4 through 6, the prophet says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now think about this. If you have a child, don't you want something for your children? I think of my three children. I I want things for my children. I want them to grow up and become well-formed, mature adults. I want them to be able to navigate some of the dicier situations of life with wisdom. In fact, I think most of us as parents can say there were probably times in our youth where we didn't navigate those waters too well and we don't want them to repeat our mistakes. I want them to go off to a good school. I want them to find the right person to marry. I want something for them. So can you imagine being in the shoes of Zechariah and hearing that your son is going to be the greatest prophet of all time? In fact, he hears this story, and for him, it is incredulous. It's kind of funny when you think about it. (laughs) Here he is, standing in the temple, He is having a conversation with an angel. And he's struggling with whether or not his wife can have a baby. Doesn't that just strike you as odd? But the thought had so far left his mind that he had doubted the possibility of it. And so Gabriel tells him who he is, and then he strikes him with the inability to speak. So we move into the next story. Mary, she is perplexed with what Gabriel is saying to her too. She asks a question, but she, unlike Zechariah, is commended with having faith. Let's look at those two stories together for just a moment. You see, this next story, I believe that the purpose of it, uh, this first story, I mean, is to intensify the second story. The idea here is if John's coming and his purpose is this incredible, how much more so Jesus? John's going to be a great prophet. John is born to a barren mother too far along to have a child. John will be great, but Jesus. Jesus will be greater both in status and in the scale of miracle involved in his birth. That's what we see in Luke 1, 26 to 38. How will he be greater in status? Well, Gabriel shares three titles that elevate Jesus. The first is he is called the Son of the Most High in verse 32. This is a regal title, a title that tells us very clearly he will be the Messiah. We see in verse 35 that he will be called holy, which means that Jesus has been set apart from his birth for a special service for God. And in verse 35, son of God, meaning that Jesus is uniquely from God. Now, 
Luke is beginning to blaze a trail for us. He is a good historian. He doesn't just come right out and say, attention everyone, Jesus is God. He's more subtle. We read of a, a prophecy from Malachi, and the end point of the prophecy is this. After Elijah comes, then God comes. And then we read of this title, Son of God, which means that Jesus is uniquely from God in some way. The one thing that we know at this point, even though Luke hasn't come out and said it, is that Jesus is going to be greater than the greatest prophet to have ever lived. John recognized the vast goals that separates him and Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. I believe he says, He who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Do you see the, the vast gulf there? This was a remedial task that a servant was only privileged to do. And he said, I'm not worthy to even do the task of a servant for this guy. He is greater in every way. We also see it in the scale of the miracle. John is born to a barren mother advanced in years. Jesus is born of a virgin. One miracle we see once in all the Old Testament, Sarah giving birth to Isaac. The other miracle, unparalleled in human history. Now here's something that we must contend with right from the start with Jesus. Miracles. You know what the wrong question to ask of this text is that has been asked a lot of this text? Is it possible for a virgin to give birth to a child? Terrible question. <laughs> Terrible. Why? Because we all know the answer. No, virgins do not give birth to children, right? We, we understand how genetics work. We understand how babies are made. So what's a better question to ask? Well, I would submit to you the better question is, can God perform miracles? That's the big question, isn't it? You, you have to contend with that question if you are going to engage with the life of Jesus. In fact, scholar R.T. France says, a theology that cannot accommodate God's supernatural reordering of the laws of nature is never going to find it easy to make sense of a Jesus whose life begins and ends in such a way. And... Of course, all throughout, too. We move the story along quickly. The next story is an interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. The point of that story is that Elizabeth recognizes that the child that Mary is carrying is superior. She says, how is it that I am blessed to have the mother of my Lord come and prenatal John the Baptist jumps in her womb with joy. Mary is starting to recognize who she is carrying, and she's overwhelmed with joy and sings a song that in church history we've called the Magnificat, which is based off of the first words of the Latin translation to magnify. Next, John the Baptist is born, and Zechariah is faithful to what Gabriel says. He names him John. His tongue is loosed, and he sings a song as well. The second song in this, these chapters, 
it is called in church history the Benedictus. That comes from the Latin blessed. In these songs, Mary and Zechariah praise God for these two births because in them they see physical rescue, spiritual rescue, and forgiveness of sins, and the uh, fulfillment of a long-anticipated promise that was made all the way back to the patriarch Abraham. It's all being realized right now with the coming of these two sons. Well, let's move to the next major move of the story. This is the chapter of the Bible that we are probably most familiar with when it comes to the Christmas story. And again, we're not asking, what do I know about Christmas? We're asking, what is Luke trying to say to us? Let's read this together. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The, The Bible reads, In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Jesus also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we're going to put ourselves into the mindset of a first reader of this text. The name Caesar Augustus looms large in this short paragraph. He conjures up all of the the power, the glory, the authority of the Roman Empire. And if you're a student of history, you know that he was the one who brought about the Pax Romana. He was the most powerful man in the world. He was flattered by the Roman Senate as a son of God, they called him. The poet Virgil would say these things about him, son of the deified who will make a golden age again. You see what Luke is doing? He is setting up an ironic contrast between the great commander and statesman who is celebrated as the political savior of Rome with a little child born in an ordinary town, but who is able to bring a salvation about that is far superior. One commentator notes that there's a downward spiral of power and influence. It moves from Augustus, who is the embodiment of ruthless power, to Quirinius, who is a regional leader, then Joseph, who is a poor but free man. And then you have Mary, who is a woman, unmarried and pregnant, all the way down to this baby. It's hard to think of anyone in all of this situation who is less powerful than a baby. 
makes me think of this, this degree of separation, makes me think of uh, the privilege and poverty that is contrasted between Edward Tudor and Tom Canty in Mark Twain's classic book, The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, if you've ever read this before, it's a brilliant little book. And he opens the book by describing the gulf between two babies. He says, in the ancient city of London on a certain autumn day, in the second quarter of the 16th century, a boy was born to a poor family of the name Canty, who did not want him. On the same day, another English child was born to a rich family of the name Tudor, who did want him. All of England wanted him too. England had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. There was no talk in all England but of the new baby, Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales, who lay lapped in silks and satins unconscious of all this fuss and not knowing that great lords and ladies were tending him and watching over him and not caring either. But there was no talk about the other baby, Tom Canty, lapped in his poor rags, except among the family of paupers whom he had just come to trouble with his presence. Now, Jesus' birth is not as degrading as the portrayal of Tom Canty in Prince, of the Pauper, Prince and the Paupers. He's not born to a home where no one cares. He was probably, if we understand this setting correctly, not born in a stable, and his parents probably were not shunned from hospitality in Bethlehem. You have to understand this. Hospitality was a high priority for people during this time. Uh, Joseph would have had some family members that he could go to in Bethlehem. And uh, who is not going to provide hospitality for a descendant of David in the city of David, right? So in the Bible, the word translated in, in our English translations, probably is best translated as guest room. You see a picture there on the screen, that's what a typical home would look like. Most people would have an attached guest room so that they could provide hospitality in a moment's notice. Mary and Joseph would have come and they would have asked for that guest room, but that was already full. And so what would a good host do? They would invite you into the main of the house. You'll notice there that the animals are attached. Uh, the animals were kept inside of the house. Uh, there was a lower level that was adjacent to the main floor. And the animals were brought in for two reasons. The first reason is when it is colder out, animals produce body heat, and they would heat up the home. The second is animals are kind of your main uh, piece of economic property that you, you prosper because of. And so they would bring the animals into the house for safety. So no, Mary and Joseph were not pushed around. They probably didn't arrive in Bethlehem when, when Mary was about to give birth to this baby and they're frantically looking for a house. R.T. France shares this. The circumstances were humble and perhaps inconvenient in contrast to an emperor's palace, but the scene is one of warmth 
and acceptance in a family home, not of rejection and of squalor. But what is the point? The point is, Jesus was born a peasant. Jesus was born a peasant, the savior of the world, a peasant. No privilege, no opportunity for upward mobility. We need to ask that question. Why, why does Jesus come into the world as a peasant? Well, to make sense of this, we, we now come to the next scene, the shepherds. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know that the shepherds were considered despised. They were not the type of people that you wanted associating uh, around you. So the angel appears to the shepherds and tells them, go visit the Messiah. Now you have to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Just imagine that an angel is saying to you, go find this long-expected Messiah. You would have it in your mind, I don't know if I want to do that. People talk about my profession, and it leaves a nasty taste in their mouth. People say things to me like, go away, unclean shepherd. So the angel gives them a sign that leads them to believe that they would be welcome. In verse 12, the text says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They would find a baby wrapped, which was what peasants, like shepherds, did with their newborn children. They would find the baby in a manger. So basically, the, the, the Messiah is presently living in an ordinary house like ours. He's not in a governor's mansion. He's not with some wealthy merchant who has all kinds of guest rooms attached to their house. We can go to this Messiah and we won't hear, go away from us, unclean shepherd. So now we come to the heart of the irony. He's greater than the greatest prophet of all time. He's greater than the greatest king. And if you're questioning his greatness right now, just think about what Luke has said to us so far. <laughs> he says three times, angels have come and pronounced his coming. And so uh, we also see in the story of the shepherds that the, the veil of heaven is peeled back for a minute and a myriad of angels is crying out, singing glory to God in the highest. You see, this Jesus, this King, he comes from a level of grandeur, a level of richness, a vast amount of power and authority that makes Augustus look like he's the leader of a backyard kids club. The irony is this rich king comes to us lowly. The message of God is signaling loud and clear, I am not a respecter of persons. I do not care how much money you have. Your reputation, your background, your lack thereof, is inconsequential to me. What are we learning about Jesus? Again, the message is loud and clear. Anyone can approach Jesus. The poor wouldn't have access, access to a baby who is born in the pomp and the splendor. The king of the universe would have to lower himself immensely. Immensely. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. But who can see this? Can you see it? Who can see Jesus despite the circumstances surrounding his birth? Some people look at this story, and let's just be honest, they look at the, uh, the things being said about Jesus, and they just say to themselves, this is idiotic. Or others say, it's too incredulous. But some people are able to look at all of the things that are taking place in this birth narrative and they find a lot of joy in it. They're receptive of him. Uh, Dare I say, even expectant of him. What does it mean to be receptive of something? I would suggest to you that to be receptive means that I have an open mind. My mind's not made up. I'm I'm willing to look at the facts. And in this story, we see that with certain people. They are expecting God to move along in his story of salvation. You have to understand that for 450 years, there was no major movement in the prophetic storyline They call that the years of silence. It's Malachi up to these gospel uh, messages. Now, I don't understand that 450 years of silence to mean that God never spoke through prophecy during that time. Uh, It wouldn't make sense. Simeon was expecting something that had to come to him through a prophetic message. But I do understand that to mean that this silence meant that there was no major movement in God's story of salvation. What do you do if there's no movement in God's story of salvation? Well, the faithful wait upon God. They wait. They believe. They pray. They trust in his promises. They expectantly trust that in any moment, God may choose to break into history and start the next part of his story again. I believe that Zechariah, as he's praying in the temple, is praying to that end. As I look at the Magnificat, I understand that there's a sense of fulfillment that has come from longing in Mary's song. And now in these next verses, Luke 2, 22 through 38, we meet two other individuals who show us what receptivity looks like, Simeon and Anna. Simeon may have been a priest. We're not told exactly why he's in the temple. Uh, He sees these two parents who are offering up the sacrifice of those who are impoverished, two doves. The law would prescribe for the poor. In fact, the only three things that we see about Simeon is this. He is righteous and devout. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon pronounces a blessing. It's the third song in these chapters. It's called the Nunc Dimittis, which means now dismiss. 
He was so expectant for Jesus, he knew that now he could die having fulfilled God's plan. He recognizes that Jesus is bringing the salvation of God. And in fact, Simeon is the first instance in the Gospel of Luke where we see God's blessing going global. If you look at verse 32, chapter 2, he says, A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The next person, Anna, we receive a little more of her backstory. She was a prophetess, married seven years. Her husband passes away. She's now 84 years old, so probably for 64 years of her life, she has spent those years in the temple praying and fasting. The Bible tells us that when she sees Jesus, um, this is her response, and coming up, At that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Are you connecting the dots here? You're starting to see this. Look at something else Simeon says. Chapter 2, verse 34. He says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Some rise when they are confronted with the facts about Jesus. They believe. They trust that in him they're finding salvation. And because of that, they enter into God's story of salvation. Others fall. They either oppose him or they just ignore him. They reject him by ignoring him with their life. Those people do not find themselves as a part of God's story. What are obstacles to being receptive to Jesus? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, we see several obstacles. Maybe it's too much attachment to power or money. Maybe it's spiritual pride. Maybe it's overly committing to this life. You ever thought to yourself or heard someone say, I somewhat believe what's being said about Jesus. I'll just follow him later. Friends, later is always too late because I don't know what my next moment will be like. I can't predict that. We might get preoccupied with work. We might be preoccupied with family. We might try to wedge God into a little part of our life. But all of those things present obstacles to receptivity. So what what kind of people are receptive? Well, again, in Luke and in these chapters, we see that the poor tend to be receptive. The broken tend to be receptive. The righteous The righteous are those who consider God in all aspects of their life and they conform to his standards. The devout. The devout are those who faithfully day after day pursue relationship with God. These are the people who see Jesus. They see who he is. They receive his message and they want to become part of the story and they want others to become part of the story. Maybe I can help you see this as we close. I want you to look at these three glasses that I have up here. This first glass 
or these three glasses represent three kinds of people in states of receptivity to Christ. This first glass, this is filled with grape juice, and I would say, submit to you that this represents a life that is self-fulfilled. It's a person that is content with many of the things that they have. They think that they're made better with wealth. Uh, maybe it's the career ambition of their life, but their life is really full. And so when they have an encounter with Jesus and God begins to pour out blessing into their life because of their interaction with Jesus, there just isn't that much room for God to work. What would this person have to do in order to give God access to their heart? Well, they would have to change what they love, what they are pursuing. They would have to empty themselves of the love of wealth to make room for God's blessing. The second cup I would submit to you is representative of a life that is self-contained. It is the person who is spiritually proud. The person who is more than happy to bring God into their life and let the blessings of God be a part of their life, but they're really manipulating and using spiritual things for their own self-contained purposes. I study the Bible for what I get out of the Bible. I go to church as long as church does what I want church to do. But you notice that this person is never going to pour forth the blessings of God into other lives. And we've all seen people who become very stagnant, stale, even crusty in their spirituality. This third cup, this cup is broken. God can work with brokenness. You see, when God starts pouring out his blessings into brokenness, this is the type of person that says, I see my sin. I know that I need God. And as God pours forth that blessing, that blessing begins to pour out of them into the lives of other people. God starts using the message of Jesus in their life and they, in turn, change the lives of others. And do you notice that because they are pouring forth blessing in the lives of others, there's always more room to receive God's blessings. Friend, my question to you this morning is, which cup represents you? You've heard that Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet of all time. He's the greatest king who has ever lived. In fact, we will see as we continue in Luke that he's much more than those things. He can offer you salvation. You can become a part of God's story of salvation. But where are you? Later is always too late. Now is always the time to make a decision to follow Jesus. Let me provide you with an opportunity this morning to consider that. Would you, for a moment, just bow your head with me?